0: Thank you. that the heavens and the earth are filled with your glory. That there is nothing that is hidden from your sight. There's nowhere we can go apart from you, apart from your presence. From the highest heights to the lowest depths. You are there. Thank you, Lord. Please be seated.
1: Amen. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. May he be glorified in this temple. About uh, six months ago or so, I preached a message from the book of Isaiah, or focused on a couple of verses in Isaiah. Forty-three, verses 18 and 19, and it, said, it says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? A new thing has been underway at Emmanuel. And that new thing is especially evident to us now. For these last two years, we have been without a senior pastor until two weeks ago when, as a congregation, we affirmed Daniel Nelms as our new senior pastor. A new thing is happening. It's been confirmed prophetically and prophetic words in our times of prayer, and we expect to see the Lord move in new and wonderful ways. And this morning, we want to welcome for the first time as our senior pastor, Daniel Nelms to the pulpit. Daniel.
2: Guys, it is a pleasure, it is an honor to be here. My kids were just so thrilled this morning, they couldn't sit still for a second to get down here, and so uh, thank you for having me here. I don't know what to, how else to express it other than to say I am deeply honored to be here, and I'm excited for the years of ministry we have ahead of us together here. Uh, before I jump into my sermon... Uh, And as I am entering into this role of assuming the, the role of a senior pastor here at Emmanuel, I figured that I would take briefly a minute or so and tell you some things that perhaps you could expect from me, at least from these summer months. There's really three things after lots of prayer and counsel that I've sought on, you know, I'm entering a new church from a different state, and uh, how do I begin gelling here? How do I begin, uh, you know, uh, entering into this new congregation as one of the pastors here, as a senior pastor? And so, really, these three things I'm gonna be focusing on. Number one is getting time with you all. Uh, I hope in the next few months I spent a lot of time with many of you already, and I want to uh, continue to you know, have face-to-face time with you, get to know you. Uh, eventually get all of your names down. So if you see me, give some grace. I'm trying really hard. (laughs) So um, I would love to get to know you, hear your stories, hear what makes you, you know, excited about Jesus, and just to, yeah, get to know you and become one of your pastors in that way. Number two, I want to get to know fellow pastors in the community. I spent some time with uh, Pastor Will last week, and he's going to introduce me to some local pastors, and I've emailed and reached out to some, and they want to meet up with me. And you no know, church is an island, as I shared with the elders this morning. Uh, my prayer is for renewal in the church to take place. A renewal doesn't just take place in one church in church history when that happens. It takes place in many churches in the same area. So I want to get to know those pastors and, and uh, learn from them and see how I can, uh, how we can lock arms with them and serve them and they can serve us as we all reach the city of Wilmington together. And third is, is this ministry here. It's the pulpit ministry. Uh, from here, I want to share with you uh, what I perceive to be the heart of the scriptures and hopefully with you be able to meet Jesus here this morning. Uh, in the following Sundays from this time on Sundays. So as I continue to get settled here, and as the fall will be quickly approaching, along with the uh, impending big holiday season of Thanksgiving and Christmas, not knowing what our world will look like then, hopefully some semblance of normality will return, but we will be planning on some kind of, you know, different uh, opportunities for outreach and serving our community in those months to come, so please stay tuned. For that, and there's one more building block that I, I do need to say that will undergird all these things, it is prayer. I wish that I could say that I know how to pray. I'm still learning. However, I more than ever desperately need prayer, and this church needs to be covered and soaked in prayer from day one in my entrance here. Um, statistically, uh, just, just be honest, you know, not, it's pretty often that not a lot of pastors uh, make it in transitions for various reasons. I don't want to become that statistic. And so I want to, to pray and pray, pray with you, continue to pray, pray, pray as we enter into this new season of ministry. I want to see myself, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30, perhaps even 40 years. I want, I want my kids to grow up here. I want to be here for the long haul. And that requires, from the very beginning, that foundational block of prayer. So please pray for me. I want to commit to pray pray um, with you for you. And yeah, when we have opportunities, let's pray together. We need the Holy Spirit here. We need Him filling all of us. We need Him as we uh, carve out this new journey together. So, um, and the last thing I want to mention before I get into my sermon, I am not coming with a jackhammer to start flipping everything upside down tomorrow. Uh, That is not what I'm here to do, okay? Um, If there's going to be any kind of changes in anything, any new pastor, any church, there'll be, you know, changes. But that's going to be for the long haul right? That's going to be uh, stretched out. It's going to be covered in prayer. It's going to be hopefully soaked with wisdom from you guys that I can learn, you know, uh, how can we stretch forward together? What have you learned in serving here at Emmanuel for so long? How can I learn from you? How can we make these changes together? It's going to be a slow haul when it comes to that. I want it to be healthy changes, uh, changes that are focused on Jesus, focused on our neighbors so we can uh, grow together in health. And so anyway, uh, that's I guess what you can expect for me in the spirit of transparency, I don't really know what I'm preaching on next week because I am not only selling a house, I'm buying a house, I'm living with my in-laws and uh, commuting back and forth from Jersey. So life is a little crazy um, this summer for me, but what you you can expect, generally speaking, in these early summer sermons— we're going to be uh, focusing on essentials of the faith. Let's go to the beginning. Let's go to the very core of our Christianity. Identify what lies there at the center. And so those are going to be the kinds of sermons that we enter into uh, this summer. We never graduate from that. Um, I really wanted to read this quote. I'm going to go back for a minute. I, I wrote it down. I didn't read it. Rick Warren. Have you gotten to Rick Warren? You, you know, maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> Um, he famously said this. He said, We overestimate what we can do in a single year, and we drastically understate what we can do in our lifetime. And that's going to be my philosophy here with you guys. That's going to be how I'm trying to think about my entrance here at Emmanuel. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12. Verses 28 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked them, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. We have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices." And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask any more questions. Kind of funny, right? He shut them all down. Revival of the church always brings in its train a richer understanding of Scripture. Behind all the slogans and catchwords of ecclesiastical controversy— Necessary though they are, there arises a more determined quest for him who is the sole object of it all, for Jesus Christ himself. What did Jesus mean to say to us? What is his will for us today? How can he help us to be good Christians in a modern world? In the last resort, what we want to know is not what would this or that man or this or that church have of us but what Jesus Christ himself wants of us. These words are not my own although I wish I had written those down. They belong to a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his Christian spiritual classic The Cost of Discipleship. I labored over how I want to begin this sermon What I speak to you in these early weeks is in many ways the beginning of my pastoral ministry here. I labored over the foundational stones that I wanted to lay down for you all over what those stones must be. Simply said, it must be that of Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the chief shepherd. For it is him that we move, in him that we move and have our being." In him that we find all joy and all pleasure and hope and salvation and treasures of hidden wisdom and knowledge. The ultimate aim of the good news is wrapped up in the world, being reconciled back to him. For through Jesus, the world came into being. Revival of church life always brings in its train a richer understanding of scripture, said Bonhoeffer. And I think he's correct. Today we are in desperate need of revival, of renewal in twenty-first century America, and also in desperate need of clarity of Scripture. Yet a new revival today will look very different than in times past. Even the word revival, depending on how old you are, how much you know about church history, it may bring images of like a nineteenth-century old wooden church with a guy in suit and ties, you know, fiery preaching and altar calls and That worked. There was a time when when people by the droves became Christians in those years. But today, I can't claim to know how renewal may look. But what I can do as a new pastor of this church is try to point you towards what I feel is the most important and the most central object of our faith, that of Jesus Christ. If fresh winds of the Spirit is to blow in our day and to be sustaining winds for years to come, It must come from knowing Jesus. It must come from raising him up as our Lord and Savior. For when the Son of Man is lifted high, he will draw all people to himself. All people. To do so is a mighty task because it implies a responsibility on you and I, the worshiper. The Spirit of God is sent to those who are in Christ and we become his ambassadors, his agents of reconciliation for the world. We become his very body, his hands, his feet. In other words, through us, the presence of Jesus is found in this world by the indwelling of the Spirit. Wherever you and I go, we carry about us the temple of God to a watching and searching world, us as a people of Christ are living examples of the Christ we worship. It is indeed an awesome responsibility and a joyful, as we sung earlier, a freeing, a liberating one. How you and I live, it matters because we represent the Christ we worship. In all of my theological training, which is thoroughly Protestants, I have not really been trained well on how to talk about our work in the Christian life. I've been trained to talk about faith and what it means to have a sort of intellectual assent to the doctrines of Scripture, of repentance and confession of sin and security for Christ for eternal life. And of course, those things are true but there's more to the story in our Christian life after we get saved, is it not? Christianity is so much more than just intellectual assent. It is so much more than just agreeing to its propositions and its words. It is so much more than just Sunday attendance and private prayer and Bible reading at home. They're all so important. Those things are so important for our growth and development, deeply important, but not all if my task is to have Jesus high and lifted this morning and to see his body, us, conformed to his image so we may fulfill our task as ambassadors and disciples of him, we need to learn how to understand this life we are given and how to live it. Jesus cares about how we live. Our Western world, going as as far back as around the 4th century with St. Augustine, uh, this culture of deeply introspective kind of tradition carried on in our church where we were kind of trained to look deep in the crevices of our heart, find all the bad things inside of us, and develop anxiety about all the things wrong with us. If If you're like me, I've done that, just sweating and looking at just how rough of a sinner I am. And even with the words, if you're, again, if you're like me, when you hear that Jesus cares how we live our life, it's easy to feel immediately like, wow, well, I guess I failed on that one. Let's scratch that. Because in Christ, we are victors. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, we are saints. We are all priests. Of course you and I are not perfect, and of course Christ extends forgiveness, as he said, 77 times 7. This is not a sermon about shaming and guilting you into a better moral behavior. Far from it. Far from it. It is to cast the vision for how we as a church are to understand the very core summary of this entire book and how God originally designed, what I'm going to argue for, how human beings are supposed to live. If we can put our finger on it, if we can put our finger on what the summary of this is, we can put our finger on Jesus. Jesus' favorite way to refer himself was with the title, the Son of Man. Far from being cryptic, if you understand the Old Testament, and at the times all that word really referred to was, it meant the human he was the human, capital T H, right? The human, the second Adam, the perfect living example of what it means to be a human in light of God's original design. So it is possible this morning, I think, in one sermon, to summarize the entire Bible's vision for how to live as a human being. Is it possible, even one or two sentences? to describe the entire life of Christ, the entire orientation of Jesus' heart. I think it is because Jesus himself seemed to do it. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell the story in slightly different ways, but this morning we are going to look at Mark's telling. I'll read this one more time to you guys. One of the scribes came up to him, disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? The most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, singular commandment, greater than these. This passage in Mark uh, passage in Mark dives into the middle of a series of debates between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. They didn't trust Jesus. They had missed His ultimate message concerning himself and who He is. And they began correctly realizing that many of the claims he was making had a divine aura to it, as if he was claiming that He himself was God. And that is blasphemy, of course. If it was true, it wasn't blasphemy, and we know that it was indeed true. But they went toe-to-toe with Christ, trying to put him into a corner with difficult questions, some being controversial and complex in nature. Because Joel's not here this morning, I don't think I get to make fun of him, because that's what he did to me to Isaac. You guys remember that? He put me in a corner. But I think he's a jokester, so I think he's good for that anyway. this passage arises here when the scribe desires to know the summation of the entire Bible of the Old Testament at that time. That's all that they had that compromised their Bible. How do you summarize it all in one commandment? How do you summarize the especially the law of Moses in one single command? Some guy spent time, whoever he was, counting every law it was 613 laws that came up with, and I'm sure, sure nobody wanted to challenge him on. It's like the job. You did the work there. We won't try that again. So he came up with 613 laws that compromises the Old Testament Mosaic Law. And the question is, how can we sum that up into one? Is it possible? What is the greatest commandment, Jesus? Well, Jesus' answer wasn't just his. His popular teachers basically around that time could summarize it like this as well. And this is how he did it. Number one. Actually, not number one. Take it back. The commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. So how are we to follow Jesus? How are we to live as disciples? How does the Bible summarize it for us? The Bible says it begins with the love of God. The love of God with all of your hearts, with all of your mind, and all of your soul, and all of your strength. I don't think Jesus had these four things to be some kind of formula to say, well, what does it mean the heart, the soul, let's divide them up, let's see how we can follow, blah, blah, blah. I don't think it really was like that. Most scholars agree that Jesus is almost like euphemistically saying, I, I want all of you to love God. There's not a single bit of you that should not be wrapped up in the love of God. All of your hearts, all of your mind, all of your soul With all of your strength, you are to devote the entirety of your being to the love of God. Then, of course, we are forced to define the word love. The reality of that word seems to be nearly undefinable. So how do we do it? One of my favorite novelists and essayists of all time, Wendell Berry. If you haven't read Wendell Berry, please go read Wendell Berry. He's a Christian farmer out of Kentucky. He writes the most beautiful novels, poetry, essays, you can name it. I love his work. Uh, His book, Jaber Crow, is one of my favorite books of all time. And having in his mind throughout that novel, The Love of Christ, this is how he defines love. Love. But love, says Wendell Berry, sooner or later it forces us out of time. Of all that we feel and do, of all the virtues and all the sins, love alone crowds us at last over the edge of the world. For love is always more than a little strange here. It is in this world, but not altogether of it. It is of eternity. It takes us there When it holds us most here. True, genuine love is indeed not of this world. True, genuine love is proof that there is indeed something beyond this world. When you see love in action... Paul says that love never passes away because God is love, and he will never pass away. And therefore, it is the greatest thing that we should desire to embody and to pursue. The very word love, though, in our English language is a little cheap. I can say in one breath that I love pizza, which, by the way, I think Delaware seems to have comparable pizza with Jersey. All those are pork roll in Delaware? No. Yeah. Yeah. So there, you're missing something. Actually, I do know what pork roll is, but it's good. So if you're in Jersey, go, go find it. There we go. There we go. Anyhow, one breath, you can say, I love pizza. And the next breath, I love my children. Now, surely and hopefully, my love for pizza is different than my love for my children. And you can see that our English language is very limited in describing and defining love. There are six Greek words for love in our New Testament because most cultures seem to know that love is a little more complex. It takes many different words to describe what we're trying to talk about. I won't go through all of them. A couple of them is the marital intimate love is eros. Philia is brotherly or sibling love, of course, is where the idea of the city name Philadelphia comes from, city of brotherly love. But in this passage, Jesus uses a Greek word, agape which I'm sure you've heard on Christian titles and things like that before. It is the idea of a long-devoted love, a love that requires deep and deep commitment, almost what could be described as covenant love. The most synonymous Hebrew word in the Old Testament brings uh, the, the idea of hesed love to comparison. Loving kindness is how some of our Bibles translate it, a commitment of love that is not dependent on the object of your love's response. Your, your love is, is committed regardless of how it is received, and that is a beautiful definition of God's love for us, is it not? Now, I am not committed deeply to my pizza, as I am in my 30s, in fact. Pizza no longer responds to me as it used to, and I usually have a bad day afterwards, and so I distance myself from my commitment to pizza, but my love for my kids is very different. I am committed to them. If they are in harm's way... I would place myself in harm's way to protect them. And that is how we define love, is it not? That is agape love. That is the love Jesus says that we are to have for God because it is the kind of love that he has for us. That is precisely why love is not of this world, as Wendell Berry is so aptly observed. God is love, as John says, and in him there is no darkness at all. Love, true and genuine love, may lead you to sacrifice something in order to get the object of your love. To love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength is truly an impossible task as long as sin resides if we speak of doing it in the fullness of manners. It is more of an ideal of our human existence on this side of the second advent. It is a statement of what we should be we, we, what we were initially, in our natural state before sin entered this world. And that is why it is the best ideal path to describe how to conform to be like Jesus. We must love God with all of our inner being. Now, how do we love God? What exactly does that look like? It is tempting to want to reduce the love of God to mere simple religious deeds. Sometimes I am am hesitant to initially tell people when I first meet them that I'm a pastor because almost universally the response is some kind of awkward burden on their end to start telling me all the religious stuff that they've done as of recent in order to justify themselves as quickly as possible oh you're a pastor for church yeah yeah, yeah. i was in church recently and I, I gave some money when i was there and i went to confession or i served in the soup kitchen and i read my bible last week and it was just like guilt that comes up immediately and i'm like guys ah, it's, it's really okay like i'm not you know loving god is not this religious burden to be carried if the church tries to systematize loving God to a bunch of religious deeds in a checklist, then all we will be doing is giving you another burden that you will not be able to bear. Yes, you should want to gather with Christians to worship Jesus. You should want to participate in discipling and investing into one another, reading scripture with one another, praying together, giving some of your monies to Jesus and to others. All those things are indeed a very natural and absolutely necessary outflow of our love for Jesus. But do you know how Jesus described our love for God, how we can also throw all those things we just mentioned into another kind of summary statement? How does Jesus sum it up? He says this, it is deeply tied to the second part of this commandment, singular commandment. We love God by loving our neighbor. So number two here, Jesus said, love to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other greater commandment than these. Do you see how he stated this? He used a singular word, commandment, to the, while referring to these two commandments. They are essentially one and the same according to Jesus. They should not and cannot be separated if at all possible. If you love God, you will express your love for God by loving your neighbor. To further our definition, as expanded upon in the Bible, love is self-giving. I talked about this when I was with you guys a few weeks ago. Love is making life about God and about others and not about yourself. Love, as you said earlier, it is the willingness to put yourself in harm's way for the sake of someone else. It is the carrying of the burdens of those in great need around you. It is clothing those who need clothing, meeting with those who need to be met with, no matter how inconvenient it may be. It is being willing to be self giving even at the expense of yourself. Does this not describe how God has loved us? As in Matthew 25, in the, in the parable of the sheep and the goat shows us, when we, when we love, Those around us, especially the least among us. When we pour ourselves out for our neighbors, Jesus said that we are doing it for Him. So, therefore, the Christian life is essentially made up of this love God by loving your neighbor. And as you will hear me often say, when we share the gospel, the good news of Jesus is life, death, and resurrection. When we do so with words, as often as possible, while we are sharing the gospel, we must also be washing their feet. The two are not to be separated, if at all possible. Loving God without loving your neighbor gives birth to hypocrisy. Loving neighbor without loving God is not a Christian love. Anyone can love neighbor, but when we do that, things like the idea of karma can also surface because, well, why would you want to do that? Well, hopefully, as the idea of karma says, that love somehow benefits me when it's all said and done, so that's why I do it. That is not a Christian love. That is not what Jesus did for us. We already have Jesus, do we not? Is that enough? Therefore, go and love others, even to death, like Jesus did for us. Loving God by loving your neighbor turns the church into a lampstand of loving brightness for all to see. And as we share the gospel, as we pour into each other, and as we then pour into our community, the gospel becomes full of color. It becomes fully rounded out. And this is precisely how Jesus himself lived. When he walked around this earth, he didn't merely say, everyone needs to love God. See you later, and walk away. No, he was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, because he took on the burdens of his fellow brothers and sisters and those around him. Those in great need, those who were often outcasts from society, unloved and pushed away, they would rush to Jesus. They were aware of their need, and he would enter into their lives and love them because he loved his father. And the very nature of love is to be self-giving, pouring out. One of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark, it reads this way in the very first chapter. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him, chapter 1, 40 through 42, imploring him and kneeling. He said to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Moving with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. There's something very uh, crucial, a detail that's very crucial you must pay attention to in this brief story. Jesus didn't have to touch this man. He didn't need to do that, right? Lepers know it's it's by physical touch that it spreads and they would have to yell, unclean, if people walked by so they would know, we got to stay away from these lepers. Nobody touched the lepers. And we see Jesus merely healing people with a word and people would be miles away, would be healed. He didn't have to touch this man. But, as Mark said, he was moved with pity. And then he touched him. Who knows how long this guy has had leprosy? Who knows how long this guy was on the fringes of society without any other human touch? Who knows how long it's been? Jesus knew that. He knew he didn't only need to be revealed who he was. He didn't only need to be made clean, he needed to be loved. And Jesus reached out and he touched him. God, if you will, he took on our very leprosy, sin, because that is what love does. It drives us to take the burdens of someone else on and carry it for them. When we share with someone that Jesus died for their sins, we are sharing with them just how much God loves them. And we are to then show them how God has loved them through loving them, even if it causes us to deep sacrifice. These two, whenever possible, are not to be separated. As we close here in a few minutes, to be a Christian is to love God and love our neighbor. Loving God and neighbor is far from keeping a checklist of religious deeds, as we have mentioned. I don't like talking negative about the church because the church, universal, is the wife of Christ. And I don't like people talking negative about my wife, right? So we want to be very careful when we address the church universal and how we speak of her. But we can, in ways, try to be honest about things. And I want to try to point out something gently as like, if I can, right now, if Christianity is to be meaningful in the 21st century, if Christianity is to have meaning in this current city of Wilmington to the younger and to the older, to the rich and the poor, to the black, brown, and white generations of all the people who surround this church building, to all the community that surrounds us all, we must aim to truly embody the very life of Jesus himself by the power of the Spirit as he dwells in us. We must, as I'm trying to say, uh, stir you up by way of reminder, as Peter said, as Jude said, remind you that we are to embody Jesus. We are his hands. We are his feet. And I can tell you, a, the world out there is dying to see Christians who do this. They are dying to see a church embody Jesus. And I am not trying to say you aren't. Of course not. Not. If you feel guilty, it's part of that Western kind of thing I mentioned earlier, just this natural way of, oh, just feel guilty, I'm a failure. That's not what I'm trying to say whatsoever. I'm just stirring you up for the things I know that you already know, the things I know you have heard before in your Christian life. Stirring it by way of reminder. This is the call of Christ. I'm trying to cast a vision that the Bible lays out for us as the ideal, the entire Bible summed up in loving God and loving our neighbor. That is the clarity of Scripture that I believe needs to be recovered today. That commandment sounds rather simple, or even easy, perhaps, and I can kind of say it really is to some degree, because you know Jesus said that if you bring a cup of cold water to somebody in His name, that you'll by no means go, you will by no means go unrewarded. My two-year-old, he can almost bring me a cup of cold water. I'll get half of it, you know, by the time he gets to me. So it's actually can be rather simple. But however it can also be rather difficult as we've seen this love of god towards of god and neighbor uh, it led to the incarnation of jesus and we'll close with this his love was a costly love in fact it cost jesus everything if we don't grasp this we will wind up with cheap love we will have claimed to receive costly love from god that cost him everything while living out a cheap love that costs us nothing. When David had the opportunity to sacrifice greatly to God and have opportunity to do it for free, he was marked as saying, I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. Because what he gave to us cost him everything. Everything. This grace we have received in Christ has been costly for countless Christians throughout history. And as we close, let me share with you a story of Peter and the transformation that occurred in his life. When Peter first met Jesus, his initial call was simple. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, Matthew 4. Peter dropped everything and followed him. Throughout his years with Jesus, he was continually told by Christ that being a disciple would indeed be costly, and for himself, Jesus, that he was going to go to Jerusalem to die and to be raised three days later. Peter rebuked Jesus one time. He said that, and Jesus said, yes, Satan, get behind me. Peter getting grasped what Jesus was trying to say, and the question then will become, would Peter follow Jesus all the way to his death? At the Last Supper, what did he say? I will go with you, even if it means to die with you. But when the time came, as was prophesied by Christ alone, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. Seeing his brutal treatment at the hand of the Romans, Peter freaked out, if you will. He called down curses on himself, rejecting even a, uh, the slightest association with Jesus, only to run away in brokenness, being crushed in spirit, weak in sorrow because he turned from his precious Lord, Jesus. At the end of the Gospel of John, in chapters 21, verse 22, Jesus, after the resurrection, after his victory, and after reaffirming Peter's love for him, Peter, do you love me? Ask him three times, as many times as Peter rejected him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He said once more, Peter, follow me. As an old man, Peter found himself In a very similar circumstance once again. The same circumstance that he actually ran away from earlier in his youth. A cross was before him. A cross that he would bear if he were to continue to confess the name of Jesus. This time, instead of running, he joyfully accepted under one condition. That he would be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die like his precious Lord Jesus did. Peter went from a man who ran from the cross, who ran from the suffering that it would entail to a man who ran to the cross. To follow Christ will be costly. Indeed, it may be said that love by its nature is cross-shaped. To love God and love our neighbor will be costly. We need to do so. We will stumble and we will trip as we try to do so as a community We may feel as if we often fail, even fail one another as Peter failed Christ. As one of your new pastors this morning, my prayer for my leadership is this, that I can not only speak of such a call to you, but I I myself can embody this as I try to lead you into this. And I've asked my wife to really help me with this. I want to embody this. Part of the good news is that you can always get a do-over in Christ. There's always a chance to be forgiven, to be washed anew, to get a do-over in Christ. And as we have before us new beginnings, I pray that the surrounding community will know Emmanuel as that church who shares in the life of Jesus by loving God and loving our neighbor. For I can tell you that many yearn for Christianity to be true, and they want to see that happening amongst us. So friends, let's be like Peter, and let's run to the cross. But let's do so together. There's two important things I want to close with. You were the first neighbor. There's, I think, an order, okay, and I won't preach their sermon here. We'll close up in like two minutes, um, maybe three minutes. <clears throat> the first sphere of neighbors is your family. You have to be devoted to your family, especially men, right? Women, your, your children, you to be devoted to your family, to care for them, to raise them up in the faith. Secondly, we are neighbors here amongst each other guys, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the love of Christ. Invest to to each other. If one of you are in need, please make that known. Pray with each other. Invest into one another because if we all embody this, we all have a role to play in this church. If we embody being that body of Christ, his hands and his feet, finding our role and flourishing in that role, I'm telling you, this community will be changed. This community will be affected and will be different. So as we close this morning, I want to um, uh, uh, encourage you all, okay? If the Holy Spirit has stirred something in you this morning, which I pray he has, okay? If he has done something inside of you, if there is sin in your life that you know has just entrapped you and you feel enslaved to it, please do not leave this place without grabbing somebody next to you and confessing your sins, okay? No matter how dark they may be, no matter how embarrassing it may be, Jesus himself, uh, Peter, betrayed his Lord and Jesus gladly forgave him and reinstituted him. Jesus can give you grace and forgiveness this morning. If there's a burden on your shoulders this morning that you need carried, you have neighbors that surround you in this very room, grab somebody before you leave, pray with them. Grab one of the elders, please pray with them as you leave this place. So I pray that this, uh, this, this vision that I have cast to you of sharing in the life of Jesus by loving God and loving your neighbor will stir us up to be living as missionaries this week and living as fellow neighbors of each other in this body of Christ, investing to each other and praying for each other. So let me, uh, let me close, let me pray. Jesus, um, we love you so much. I, I just pray my feeble words somehow uh, described the greatness, the, the majesty, the almost impossibility of defining the love that you have for us. The depths and the heights and the, the width of your love for us uh, cannot fully ever be described. Not enough books could be written to explore it and try to describe it. And Lord, if you could just empower us by your spirit to even just be a small glimmer of that love in our life just a small little glimmer of that lord people would meet you they would see you they would know you things would would change lord all around us thank you for the the christians in this room who i know love you who i know strive to want to embody this who, who have some for more decades than I have been alive and some who are newer in the faith. We come from all walks of life in this room and we thank you for that, Jesus. Would you please in our unique personality, unique wiring and all those things, Lord, would you equip us for this awesome role of being ambassadors, Lord. Would you place people in our life that need to be loved this week, that need to hear the good news of Jesus? Would you place needs in our path that we can be generous towards, that we can get our wallets out and just, and just really assist and help those if they are in great need, Lord. If we have two cloaks, that so we could give one to those who are in need. Put those people in our life this week and give us opportunities to share with them and show them your love. Lord, I want to pray for anybody in this room right now who may be uh, sick, even physically ill, or that they're just carrying the weight of pain and, and aches and sickness. Would you heal them even right now? Would you strengthen them right now that they may, um, with the years that we have, Lord, in this, in this life, be able to... F- to, uh, to, to live pain-free, sickness-free, so they can rightly love you, love their neighbor, Lord, and be uh, a, a crucial part of this body to invest into each other and to invest into this community. You are the healer, God. You can heal. We pray that you would heal. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody now that as we close in prayer, if they're just on the fence of reaching out to somebody to, to just to pray with, to confess, Lord, would you just break those walls right now? And would they grab somebody, Lord? And would would, would we be able to leave this room changed, altered people in light of you? We love you, Lord. You've done so much for us. And there's nothing that we could repay you back, Lord, that could even come close to what you've done for us. It's a free gift, this grace that we've received. We thank you for that, Jesus. We pray this in your good name. Amen.